Welcome to the Internet Advisor Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Foster Brown. Along with my co-host, Gary Baker, and our team of experts, we've been helping people like you since 1998 with your computer problems, introducing you to valuable resources, and promoting tech enterprise throughout Michigan. The Internet Advisor is a two-hour podcast recorded every week at the studios of historic WJR Radio in Detroit. Both hours of the show are available each week on this podcast and are streamed to our affiliates across the state of Michigan. We're also proud to be part of Detroit's newest and fastest-growing podcast network, PodcastDetroit.com. And now, here are your hosts with this week's Internet Advisor... Welcome to the Internet Advisor, your place for answers to your computer questions since 1998, with your co-hosts Gary Baker and Foster Brown and their team of tech experts. The door is always open at internetadvisor.net, on Facebook and through Twitter. But right now it's time to get you in touch with your helpful hosts on this week's edition of Internet Advisor. Hello and welcome aboard. Foster Brown here for a very special three hours of the Internet Advisor. Thank you very much for joining us. We've got a great program lined up. In this first hour, we're going to be touching on international security with a surprise guest in studio with us and also the gadget guys with us. That's Mr. Rick Broida. He's going to be talking about virtual reality and some great bargains out there. Of course, he is the cheapskate. And we've got plenty more for you coming up in hours two and three as well. Stay tuned. Well, now that spring has sprung and we're on a brand new schedule, matter of fact, our summer schedule is coming up pretty soon. Spring summer schedule will be on regularly from 4 to 6 o'clock. Dr. Dean Krauskopf coming in next week with the gardening program. We get to have a special program here, three hours. Uh, so we've got lots packed in this weekend. Mr. Gary Baker, Thanks. is it not true? It is true, but I don't think we have to talk gardening this first hour. No, no. I, we'll leave that till next week when Dean starts. <laughs> so tune it uh, up. Yep, that's so right. That's great. And uh, uh, Ed Rudell and I'm back from vacation from Florida, so we took my wife to celebrate our 23rd wedding anniversary. And you watched a lot of baseball. I went down there to watch the Tigers spring training. It oh, was wow. it was incredible, and you know, 85 degrees and sunny. And uh, uh, I know you guys hate me for that. Did they let you play center field at all? No, no. <laughs> oh, I was in the berm trying to <laughs> shag uh, balls. That <laughs> was awesome. Great time had by all. And this is Cal Carson, and I'm so glad to be here today. And I don't know why, but it's just a great time. And when you said we're back and we're regular, regular made me think of our next person. That is <laughs> Mr. Regular himself. <laughs> well, <laughs> Rick is our gadget guy. We'll be talking about gadgets and also our cheapskate. Uh, he's a noted columnist on CNET and elsewhere in the internet. And we'll be talking about, in particular, I want to find out more about virtual reality. That's something that you've been looking into. Uh, and right, yeah, uh, we'll have... Some great deals out there. But Gary, so, you've got a special guest well, in studio with us. So do I have to introduce somebody who's irregular? <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's my son, Justin. Uh, so Justin and I went to watch a practice at, uh, for U of M football down at Ford Field. Mm. And uh, because he's interested in cybersecurity, and we're going to tell why that's important for him to be here. Uh, welcome, Justin. It's good to be here. Another generation of bakers online here. It's good to have you. Yep, that's, that's right. Now, and, you, and, and the, the reason... 
that really throws me off because this guy is like a champion. Or I call him a champion because I don't know any other one anyway. A champion lacrosse player. What that's is he right. hanging around a football field? I just love to see Michigan play. Uh, anything Michigan. That's right. Uh, all right. He's an all-state all lacrosse player for uh, Catholic Central. So Excellent. Uh, and they just started uh, their their season with uh, a win against Gross Point South. Congratulations. So uh, Even though it's my old side of town. <clears throat> he, uh, he didn't get to play much the second half because they... Uh, We're beating them pretty thoroughly. Yeah, it's 18-5 when it finally ended. <laughs> ouch, but, ouch, uh, ouch, ouch. But anyway, so uh, another guy who's not, we can't even call him regular because this is, I think, your second time on the program, and that's uh, Stephen Fox. Stephen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Stephen, you're the Senior Cybersecurity Officer for the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Yes, I am. That sounds pretty ominous. <laughs> it's actually, it's pretty challenging. It's, it's a lot of fun work. It, it feels good to... Uh, be serving the citizens of this country and making sure that they're, the assets they entrust to us are are secure and private. You've got to have a big target right on your back oh, being man. the senior cybersecurity officer. Well, we there are several of us. We have a, it's, a, it's a large organization, so yeah. cybersecurity is com, com, comprises a lot of different teams. Yeah. A, and, and, and this time of year, I would imagine a big bullseye painted on your back with, uh, with the, the amount of information that's being traded back and forth between the citizens and an agency. <laughs> Indeed, and, and that's that's part of the the challenge, but also the the joy of the job. It's it's never a boring day at the, oh, at no. the treasury. I imagine never a, day, a boring day. Cal, you're going to say you something? know I was I was about to say you know what the heck does the treasury have to do with cyber? And I thought everything. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yes. My my big question came to my mind. Yeah, people are always like trying to steal tax information and use that to file yeah. for fake returns to get money from yep. it. Do, do hackers ever try to like draw money directly out of the treasury? Well, mostly they, they they attack us through the taxpayer. Okay. Yeah. They they try to collect information through various means such as uh, social engineering, right. tapping into people's communications to get the information they need to pass themselves off as a taxpayer. Mm. That's the main avenue of of attack that they use. Stephen, well, and and I was just going to say that the um, you know I get all my really great information uh, Friday mornings at breakfast, and uh, yesterday morning, Stephen, we were at breakfast uh, along with <laughs> Securus, uh, which is a great little um, consulting security consulting firm. Eric Getter and John Kelly and and a bunch of guys were at breakfast, and you were talking about. Privacy Shield, indeed. And um, as some of the audience members may be aware, we used to have this thing called Safe Harbor. Mm-hmm. And basically, what Safe Harbor was was an agreement between the European Community and the U.S. and how they would exchange data. Mm-hmm. So, okay. is, that, is that the rules and how to do that, both for security and privacy? So that's some really in the news lately because a lot of uh, data needs to be analyzed uh, and passed back and forth between different agencies, both here and in Europe. Uh, there, there were some problems in Europe over the last week or so. And, oh, my, yes. And I know that cybersecurity is, is part of the solution there. Well, the the main concern there is the exchange of information and how mm-hmm. certain terrorist groups may have used the information that they gleaned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that also goes to the matter of surveillance. Right. And that hits on the topic of privacy, which is very a very sensitive point for the European community. It's become even more sensitive, I understand, since the uh, Edward Snowden uh, revelations and some of the things that they've seen going back and forth. Correct. So going back to the topic of safe harbor, 
Uh, well, I'll tell you what, hang on to that. We'll talk about that when we come back because uh, the change from Safe Harbor to Privacy Shield has been a big one and a very important one, especially now with some of the things that have gone on with terrorist activity in Europe. Coming back in just a moment, we're going to continue that conversation with Stephen Fox from uh, Chief Cy- Cyber Security Officer from the federal government. Well, we certainly are talking today about a subject that has been in the news a lot, and that is security. And uh, a very, very important, especially after Brussels, you know, the the bombing that went on there, the terror. And uh, we have with us in studio Stephen Fox, who's a senior cybersecurity officer with... uh, one of the federal agencies. U.S. And Department of the Treasury. U.S. Yep. Department of Treasury. And Gary, thank you very much for bringing them in. Stephen, we were talking about the safe harbor, just for people who are in the audience right now who are listening. Safe harbor was um, was an agreement uh, for um, uh, exchanging data information between ourselves and our European allies. Am I just part of what that covered? So, I, Go ahead. So here's part of what we do here in Detroit is automotive. Yep. And we have... Overseas presence in various European countries. Oh, absolutely, countries. right. And if we have a cu- if an automotive company has a European customer with Safe Harbor, uh, let's say the Ford Ford Motor Company, for example, would attest to the, to their own ability to transfer information and gather information securely. Okay. And to keep it private. Okay. And with Safe Harbor, that's all that was needed. There yep. wasn't a whole lot of verification. There weren't a, a whole uh... lot of audits. And there was this unspoken trust between the European community and the U.S. And it sounds like that, that trust is broken. Correct. Thank, thanks to our friend uh, Ed Snowden <laughs> yeah. and all the NSA revelations that he yeah. brought to uh, to the open. Oh, and through. things like, you know, Angela Merkel, uh, some of her email being, uh, you know, looked at. And a lot of your other leaders, world leaders, having their stuff looked at by the NSA. And the, the, the reaction was very negative. Uh, mm. The... It, it came to a head when certain people within Germany were actually saying, we're going to start a European internet. Oh, boy. And they'll totally separate themselves off from the American uh, internet. Wow. Yeah. Start segregating the internet Correct. into different kind of neighborhoods, I guess. Yeah, right? but I'm- Walling it off in some ways. Isn't that kind of I what China gonna, does? I'm I was going to uh, tongue-in-cheek say, unfortunately, they didn't do it, but- <laughs> Well, the 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 price to do so, but also the 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 economic impact would be huge. Right. Oh, Lord, just yes, just, yeah. just to give you a sense of what that would be. The European market is worth two thousand two thousand five hundred billion euros every year. Two thousand five hundred billion. So it'd be like like two trillion, isn't it? Yeah. To the two companies. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that's a huge impact. Uh, on us economically as well. Right. Now it's changed. You said to Privacy Shield is the is like the new agreement. That's the new that, way of doing business. That's the new agreement that's currently mm-hmm. being reviewed by the U.S. So Safe Harbor was invalidated in October of last year. Okay. In February of this year, Safe Harbor was posed as a as a draft agreement to, for review by the U.S. And what are the, what are the major differences then? The major differences are giving the Citizens in Europe a lot more power over how their information is used. Mm. So if a, if a Ford Motor Company gathers information during a purchase of a vehicle, the uh. the purchaser has the right to be told, okay, we're gathering these items or, or information I about you. you. I got you. They have the right to choose not to let you do that and still oh. buy the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they have... 
to receive accountability assurances from Ford Motor Company Mm. and a number of other things where let's say that Ford Motor Company has the ability to slice and dice and analyze the information they got right now. They think we're going to use it for marketing purposes. Sure, sure, whatever the purpose may be. If next year they figure out, oh, we can use this for some other purpose – they have to notify the tax. The, wow. the, uh, so there's a lot more. As you said, with, with Safe Harbor, it was kind of like there was an understanding. We've got our correct, security together. Correct. Now they're having to spell it out much more clearly correct. than that. So um, now, is this it's, is the concern about privacy coming from just older people? Because I th- my son's sitting here next to me, and I think of his generation, and, and I would say something about privacy, and most of him, you know, him and most of his friends would go, there's no privacy on the internet. Just give it up, <laughs> right? You're not going to have it. And I'm, I'm just wondering if this is generational, if, yeah, or question. if there's um, millennials in Europe that feel that privacy is, is that important, because well, it doesn't seem that way with the millennials here. So millennials in Europe are very concerned. And it really goes mm. back to the basic differences between European privacy and U.S. It's it's philosophical in nature. It's interesting. Uh, in Europe, privacy is a matter of being a human right. Everyone has oh. a very strong attitude towards privacy, whether they're a person about to retire or a person that is having their first birthday. And you know, it's interesting. That's where that emphasis came from. The impetus came for that Google um, being able to erase yourself from the internet, I think, as well. The pro- came from the, Spain, I think, initially. Right. The, the right to be forgotten. The right to be forgotten. That's exactly. A, a huge right. Stephen, I, because we have a little time here, I understand that uh, part of the other thing besides citizen control is that there's a lot more scrutiny on the people who are gathering the information and some much higher penalties if you're found to be following things up. Correct. So for us, we have so a company doing business in Europe has to have to deal with the Department of Commerce, the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Transportation mm. if they even want to deal with Europe. And the Department of Commerce also investigates a breach. And if someone's found to be liable, they could be fined as, as high as 4% of what they made that year in Europe. So now wow. if I have a website, I'm a small business, I have a website here, and some European wants to log on and order one of my products and, and they have to give me information, am I subject to what eventually will be Privacy Shield? I wasn't. I, I didn't have to worry about Safe Harbor. Safe Harbor was, um, you know, was hardly on my radar as a small business. How does that work now? Well, that... That goes to the the more granular levels of this. If you're a large enough company, you have to go through the Department of Commerce to apply for it. Much much like doing business with credit cards, you got to go to the the paper car industry. Chip and pin over there and whatnot. Okay. So, my area of interest really comes in for the smaller companies that Mm -hmm. would impact the millennials, for example, because. They are giving away a lot of a lot of information. So yeah. right now, this is there is uh, the threat of a suit against uh, Facebook mm-hmm. from mm. from France. Oh, really? Because of the, the amount of information that Facebook is gathering from its that users. Is interesting. It hasn't yet been brought as a lawsuit, but they're threatening, saying, if mm. you don't change your privacy mm. law uh, re- re- regulations, 
regardless of you. Rick, you had a, a question. I yeah, I figure as long as I'm seated next to a security expert, I wanted to ask something that's kind of been in the news lately. There was a story a couple weeks ago about a journalist who was on an airplane who uh, was hacked uh, from a, a passenger uh, on that flight as well, oh. who basically accosted him after the flight and said, you know, I saw everything that you wrote. And um, wow. the question that came out of this was um, when you're connecting, and I know this is a little bit more local, not international, but when you're connecting to a hotspot, whether it's on an airplane, it's in a coffee shop or what have you, um, you should be connecting via a VPN, a virtual private network, which can be hardware-based or, or software-based. And I just want to know from you, Stephen, what, what's your take and what do you do when you're out at a, connecting to a public hotspot? Well, given the nature of what I do, I'm very security conscious. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and I bring up my own hotspot. but not which, which gives you what? Which does well, what for What you? that does, it, it provides me with a secure connection that okay. the coffee shop will not provide you. Okay, so and so but on an airplane for example where that's the you know the only option is their Wi-Fi, uh, do you stay do you not connect uh, when you're in an airplane? I'll still connect. I just want to do, I'll choose if, if I do anything sensitive, I'll set up a software VPN to control okay what's hitting that connection because there are filters you can apply at the terminal level before you right. even hit the hotspot. Ed, did you have something to add to that? Well, I was just going to say, usually trying to establish a VPN connection on a flight doesn't work that well. I mean, I mean, you could do standard interconnection, but if your VPN connections are severed in flight, then you're, you're constantly reconnecting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a challenge. It's, it's difficult. In any way. Yeah, and it's getting better and better, but yeah. you're right. It, you have yeah. to maintain that VPN if you're going to... But this, the, the VPN, go ahead, Rick. Right, so I think, I think the point is that any public hotspot that you connect to, whether it's on a flight or it's in a Starbucks or whatever is is by definition insecure, uh, and so the VPN is being touted as a solution to that. And it, and for just an individual um, who wants to say uh, secure, very inexpensive too. There are free VPNs. There are some that cost you know ten twenty bucks. It's not an expensive way to keep yourself secure. But something definitely to look into if you need to communicate in those places. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Stephen Fox, uh, senior cyber cybersecurity officer with the government. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, when we come back in just a minute, we're going to switch to Mr. Rick Broider. If you're wondering what in the world is the Internet Advisor doing at this time, it's because we have this extra hour from 3 until 4, and then we'll be on until our regular time, 6 o'clock in the evening with our Internet Advisor. Next week, Dr. Dean Krauskopf is back with the WJR uh, Gardening Show and uh, with Dean Krauskopf. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and this week we're just, you know, Planning some ideas. Yep. Yeah. So. It, it, it's, it's just like Easter weekend, right? You get an extra helping of everything. There, <laughs> there you go. get this too. I want to I want to touch on a couple things. And Rick Broida, let's bring you in because uh, we, we've asked you to be here as our expert on uh, gadgets. But you brought up something interesting about VPN with uh, Stephen Fox, who's here as a cybersecurity expert for the government. And Cal, you had something interesting to say during the break for those of us who are Mac owners. Well, people talk about, well, do I have VPN software? How do I get VPN software? That sort of thing. If you're running Mac OS 10 or above, you've always had VPN software right there for you to use. It's really quite simple to do. Uh, I believe it's actually, I think it's Cisco VPN is what the uh, version that's on there. But if you go into your network settings and you add a new network occurrence in there, you can select VPN. And then once you get the appropriate credentials from the other end that you're trying to connect to, you set it up. You're good to go. Mm. Do you know if there are other um, companies that have written VPN software for the Mac, or is it just Apple that does I, that? Apple didn't actually write the software. I think it was actually written by Cisco, and Apple just packaged it into it. 
But I think you can go out on the internet and, and, just, and, and I, get freeware of VPN sites that they're right. out there as yeah. well. I know you can yeah. for the Windows environment. I didn't know if you could for the Mac. Yeah, that, or you that can. you yeah. needed to. Yeah. Yeah, but the important part to. to know about VPN is you have to have you have to usually pay for or ha- or have an employee employer that you can connect to that uses that software because. You know, you have to connect to something to establish a secure virtual mm-hmm. private network. And right. usually you have to pay for that. Yeah, well, and that's why they, but they do have o- open uh, VPN and, and it is free. Yeah. Rick, was that what yeah. you're referring to? Well, no, actually, I just wanted to explain for people who actually don't know what a VPN or, is or what it Good does idea. that we Good should uh, pause to uh, to explain what a VPN and maybe somebody who's better versed in this subject than I am. No, you're just what, clearing up. Which would be Steven since he's sitting next great. to you. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it's like, I have a VPN on my computer. Well, great. Now what? What does it do for me? Virtual private network is yes. the essential. And it's kind of creating a tunnel, Stephen, isn't it? If you want to imagine that. That's right. So essentially, you're you're setting up a encrypted communication tunnel between mm-hmm. yourself and the person you're, with whom you're communicating. The, the key to know with it is what, what version of SSL it's using because there are certain versions of SSL that have the heart bleed vulnerability where someone could just tap into that communication channel and read off everything you're, you're yeah. transferring. And most of those, I think, have been taken down and remediated. Most of them, not, yeah. not all, though. Not all, right. Yeah. Gonna and, and SSL is secure socket layer, and that's really that underlying protocol, right? Okay. A lot of geeks speak, wow. for the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a lot so of much geeks for... speak, and, and for most of us listening right now, We'll probably never even deal with it. And it, the only thing is right now for, for you to remember is make sure you practice good internet uh, practices, so, so, you know. Yeah. Make sure yeah. you know where you're going and you deal with it. It's just communi- safe interneting. When you communicate with a, a website in a secure manner, you need to make sure that it is using SSL, that it is has that little lock depending on the browser. You right. know, the lock is locked. But when you're, when you're just sending email, just realize that you're sending email in the clear meaning there's no security, and it's possible, not likely, but it's possible somebody could. Yeah, the other thing I think, too, is to understand, and folks, this may apply to most of us, it is when you go to, like, McDonald's or someplace that has a public Wi-Fi hotspot there, you're always going to be, to a certain extent, vulnerable mm-hmm. because somebody could be uh, performing what they call a man-in-the-middle idiot. That's not what yep. it's called, where essentially they are, they are spoofing that network and they're pretending mm-hmm. to be McDonald's and they're actually gathering information through that way. So uh, just be aware that when you're out there, it's a very insecure way. Now, if you're going to surf the net to look for something, that's a little different. Yeah, I think pretty much the rule of thumb is if it's something that's private, financial, or you just wouldn't want to share it with anyone else, don't use a public Wi-Fi right. to do that. Right. Your libraries yeah. will be secure. Unless um, you, know, you okay. deploy a VPN, right. Uh, right. which can be software that's on your computer. It could be an app that's on your phone or tablet. And it's really not uh, not super complicated. I mean, it's literally a little utility that you run, and then you make your connection, and, and ju- you're safe. And yeah, Justin was just showing me. You have on, on his iPad, he was showing me a couple of uh, apps that he has on he, there. He's leading the pack here because uh, he's doing something that I'm not bothering with. Yeah, <laughs> so explain how that works. O- open VPN and VPN Spider that work together, and they just set up a little VPN on my iPad. Okay, and then you can use that. As you said, for instance, you could be at some place like at school. <laughs> yeah, I could be at school accessing Facebook or whatever sites are blocked. You're, you're not really not supposed to be at school, right? <laughs> he said could. He said could. could That's do. all. Showing that ability. Hey, I want to thank you very much, Stephen, again for adding to this, because I want uh, Rick to, to talk about something that I know is near and dear to your heart and that I wanted to talk about today as well, which is kind of like another virtual world, and that is the world of virtual reality, and that's becoming a 
big deal in terms of devices that have recently popped onto the market. Yes, and as you may recall, when I got back from CES this year, the Consumer Electronics Show, I was super excited about some of the virtual reality stuff I had seen, and I continue to be super excited about it based on uh, the experiences that I'm having right now, uh, both with smartphone-powered VR and with uh, some of the higher-end stuff. Um, You may have heard of the Oculus. uh, Oculus Rift. Right, Oculus Rift, which is owned by Facebook. Uh, HTC is also very soon to release uh, a very similar product called the Vive. That's right. And um, these are um, VR headsets that are tethered to a PC. So you're getting a ton of computing horsepower behind them. And so they have to be tied into a PC in order to work, right? right. And I mean like physically tethered. Physically like there is a wire to, connecting right. your headset to, to your PC. And you need a PC with a, with a decent amount of horsepower, a good graphics card. It's funny how everybody's been saying for years and years that the desktop is dying and there's really, you know, computer gaming <laughs> is dying or whatever. But all of a sudden now, if you want a good VR uh, experience, you're going to need a powerful desktop with a really good graphics card. And it may just bring that industry unless, back. Unless you well, want to take, we, it, like, take yeah. it like a PC and strap it to your yeah. head as well. <laughs> well we may but, you ha- but you have to understand that the first time I ever used um, VR was when I was at EDS. We had a virtual reality cave. It cost (laughs) over a million dollars to, and then we had to staff it and people had to run it and it was Mm. funky and, but we used it to help uh, GM design their, Mm -hmm. um, their uh, assembly lines and some other things. Mm -hmm. And it, and it was great and it paid for itself. When you think about what you can now do, instead of a million dollars, you have to buy a really powerful PC for, what, 1500 Well, let me, you know let me <laughs> blow your mind a little bit, Gary, because for even less than that, uh, the, the toy I've been enjoying most lately is the Samsung Gear VR, which is a $99 VR oh headset. Um, similar in principle to Google Cardboard, which is kind of like the neat free or near-free that, VR headset. That you brought in to show us the last I time did you brought, were here. Yeah, right. So the Gear VR is a little bit higher end than that. It only works with a handful of Samsung uh, phones. So it's like a headset that you slip your phone into. Exactly. So your okay. phone is really the driver and has, you know, uh, the headset has lenses and it um, has a little touchpad so you can navigate menus and so forth. Um, but because Samsung partnered with Oculus, they have an ecosystem that's kind of built in so when you plunk your phone into the headset now all of a sudden you're looking at this whole uh, interface that's all vr where you can access your apps and your games whereas with a traditional google cardboard headset or anything like it it's one app at a time and you have to take your phone out run a new app put it back in oh i got you castle you can live inside this thing for hours it it, it has it has um, uh, connections in the headset right exactly externally you can press buttons in the right so there's a button there's a touchpad and a button on the outside and then as you literally look around within uh the virtual environment is how you kind of choose something that you want to do i i've heard that one of the problems is is uh People get, was it seasick no, or airsick? Yeah, yeah, there's motion sickness, motion sickness um, right. which is associated generally with any kind of lag between what you're seeing um, and the movement of your head. If there's even the slightest lag, it can make oh. you motion sick. And but some of the good getting, ones, you don't have that today. You, well, you know what? With the Oculus and the HTC, it's almost non-existent because yeah. it's so fast. With Because it's plugged Samsung, into the computer and you got a right. lot of power there. Okay. With the Samsung, I get it a little bit. Oh, really? um, it's not, not always. It depends on the app. But I just, I cannot stress how cool some of the experiences are. Um, the one I was fooling around with just the other day is called the Night Cafe, which is the name of a famous Van Gogh painting. So imagine, instead of you're looking at a painting hanging on a wall, you are inside the painting, no. able to walk around. And <laughs> it's, re- it's really, it's hard to describe, but it's just so 
incredible and so immersive. Um, I, I really think we're looking at a, at a game-changing uh, revolution here in terms of entertainment. Okay, entertainment. Yes, Entertainment, in- education, uh, there's okay. certainly potential there. Um, you know, one of the really cool apps is that you can be on stage at a Paul McCartney concert and literally sitting right next to his piano while he's playing. Uh, good luck getting that seat in the real world. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. Well, and, and the stuff that we were trying to do with helping GM design assembly plants, right? Oh, I'm sure so vertical you could, applications so will explode. you could take and, and say... You could see yourself actually taking apart and moving it over to where it needed to go to be bolted onto the car. And I mean, it's it, it, there's a lot of commercial use for it as well. Yeah, but uh, for me, certainly, I'm more excited about the the entertainment side of it. One, one of the coolest things I've seen by far is the uh, called the Martian VR experience, based on the movie of the oh, same name. Yes, and you basically get to be Matt Damon. And um, I know we got to take a break, but oh my gosh, cool well, thing! Can I've we seen come back? Ever. We can talk a little bit more about that VR. Uh, Rick Breuder with us in studio here at The Gadget Guy and uh, also got some things to tell us about being a cheapskate, which he is (laughs) as well, notably. (laughs) You're listening to The Internet Advisor. Stick around. We got lots more coming for you this afternoon. And I'd like to salute the folks who are also, as we say, behind the glass. Logan Stander for our producer and Rich Lusinski, our engineer. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> they for... both are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> These are the folks who are running the show behind us. Uh, with us in studio, of course, Rick Broida, who's our gadget guy and a number of other people, including uh, Stephen Fox is with us, his uh, senior cyber uh, security officer for one of the federal government offices. But you were talking about virtual reality being used for security as well on the government level. Indeed, and uh, one of the startups that uh, spoke at RSA conference this year, they're using virtual reality to do incident investigation. Oh. So one of the biggest challenges that cybersecurity incident responders have to do is filter through massive amounts. We're talking gigabytes of data Mm -hmm. associated with an incident. Well, this company figured out how to import it into a virtual environment and create a world of data. So you could visualize it as shapes in a room. Oh, wow. And the investigators were able to handle and manipulate these pieces of data to look for the relationships that would reveal what actually happened, where the the data went, and who might have perpetrated the crime. That is fascinating. So, Rick, there's an awful lot besides entertainment that's involved in this. For sure. I think uh, we'll see a lot of vertical applications for this as well, business applications. And it's uh, really – this is no longer a question of will this happen. Yeah. It's it will happen. Yeah. For sure. It, oh, so, so explain me something then. What is the difference between <laughs> virtual reality and – was it AR? Augmented, augmented reality. Augmented reality. Like HoloLens was the yeah, thing that – Augmented uh, reality. Augmented yeah. reality. What is the difference between the two of them? So with virtual reality, what you're basically doing is is you're taking a headset and you're putting it on your head and it kind of envelops your entire field of vision. Mm -hmm. Augmented reality is where you might have a screen, say a phone or a tablet, that you hold up and um, it sort of projects things onto – so the the camera's running and so you kind of see through – uh, the screen, what you would normally see in front of you, but the app or whatever's driving it projects things on top of that. So it is literally uh-huh. augmenting what you're seeing through okay. that camera. Um, it's <laughs> a little easier shown than explained, but yeah, um, right. that's that's kind of the, the and it's, it's still very much in the two. Up through an aquarium, right? Um, well, not no, necessarily not like that at all. <laughs> it's a, maybe heads-up display is a good example. Yeah, that's right? a better oh, okay. description, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah. Where they, okay, where the pilots are looking at yeah. information so, being projected in their field of vision. Yeah, so if you could think about using that same technology now that it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to do that in your car. You never have to look down to see your speedometer. Your speedometer's right in front of you. You either choose to see it or look through it. Okay. So and, the, and sometimes you can look through it and it doesn't even exist. Right, you don't mm-hmm. you don't see it in and actually in, the, in your way. Yeah, and that's actually uh, Microsoft's Hololens. That's right. Mm-hmm. That is that's more right. of an augmented reality device right, because exactly. you're seeing through into the real world, but it's projecting things, giving you heads up things to look at and interact with. And it, and it seems there's been less development of those items right now, probably because it's more of a challenge. Um, could be. I don't know where the Hololens I, is right I mean, now, no, but it's coming. Yeah, I, I'm thinking that there's quite a bit, um, but again, you have to, you know, you have yeah. to find the use for it that that will pay for it. And just in terms of dollars and cents, though, the the, the if you will, the cheaper end uh, to enter into this looks like the Samsung VR. Yeah, the Samsung. If you have a, <laughs> an Android phone, right? The Gear VR is ninety nine dollars, and okay. it works with I think four different um, Galaxy uh, uh, phones. Um, at the way at the cheaper end are twenty thirty dollar headsets that you can work with any uh, smartphone, just about any model, and then. Uh, you have the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive at around 600 and 800 respectively. Mm-hmm. And they, again, need to be connected to a pretty potent uh, computer. Yes, definitely this, do. This well, we say boy, pretty oh potent, boy. a $1,500. I mean, well, not, it's more than three or $400. Yeah, right? and it's more the, than the laptops that we're con- usually yeah. talking about, you right. know, three fifty, four, five hundred, six hundred $500, $600. Right. Right. This is a, but a, this a is lot not more muscle. a lot more money, really. Rick, I, w- I want you to talk about uh, um, some smartwatches and maybe comment a little bit about the Apple um, releases just recently, the, that an Apple uh, SE phone that came out, the 4-inch. Right. We had some big uh, Apple news this week, uh, or I would say medium-small Apple news. Uh, yeah. It was a pretty low-key, <laughs> low-excitement event. That's true. Event. They were smaller versions of. <laughs> right. Uh, so the, the iPhone uh, SE, which is just basically uh, Apple's updated version of the iPhone 5, uh, the 4-inch screen, but mm-hmm. with uh, better guts. Uh, oh, lots, similar lots to, of things. Force touch and a whole bunch of other stuff. In right, which which is great for people who want a smaller phone. Um, mm-hmm. I totally understand that. And then I was a little disappointed that there was really nothing much that happened on the Apple Watch side of things mm. uh, other than uh, some new bands uh, yeah. who cares and um, they reduced the price by 50 bucks. and they reduced the price by 50 bucks which yeah. I do appreciate a lot yeah. um, however again that you know <clears throat> across the board it's fifty dollars less but it's still 299 for the smaller version which is kind of targeted towards women and then it's still 349 for the large the slightly larger quote-unquote men's version uh, still a very pricey yeah. device Um so on the flip side, there was news uh, just, I think, yesterday that Pebble, um, okay. makers of one of the very first smartwatches, right. is laying off, uh, I think, about 40 employees, hmm. which is significant because I think Pebble has been struggling to, I mean, they have a good market share, but I just think that the whole concept of the smartwatch has not caught fire. Um, um. And uh, Pebble is just, you know, they're working against Apple, they're working against uh, Motorola, you know, everybody's got these these higher-end products. So interesting changes in the smartwatch so you, uh, market. It sounds like you're saying that it is a bit of a faddish kind of thing in some ways. I still just don't think anyone's cracked it. It's I don't just think, first generation. I don't think anyone's found the niche that it yeah, really I think that's what he was has saying, right? the thing to be able to do with it. Yeah, I mean, Gary, to your point, I mean, it's not really first generation. I mean, we're actually looking at second and third generation products now. Um, I think the whole industry is in its first generation. I, I was going to say I should have said first ending. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, you know, I, pardon me, but I, it seems to me that the, the Fitbit and some of those exercise devices are that end is growing. Yes, uh, the fitness bands are definitely growing in popularity. Although there was just something I, I read again in the last week or so that said that the a, a large portion of the data gathered by 
fitness trackers is inaccurate. Yes. And um, yep. which does not surprise me in the slightest mm-hmm. because when I am sitting at a desk and I reach for something with my hand that has the fitness tracker on it, did I just take a step? How does it know the difference? <laughs> and I just don't think there's any way that it can dis- disseminate between the two types of movement. I'm interested in your thoughts about earables. We had a program that we did about uh, devices now that are going into the ear because they are actually probably more accurate in terms of measuring uh, blood and some a lot more data in many ways than the things that are on the wrists. Well, I'm not. I actually have not heard of that. I think from if you're looking to, for health tracking, that might be better. If you're looking for fitness tracking, I like the stuff that's embedded into the shoes. So you think ah. about it, your shoes are your best indicator of how much activity you're, you have, right? I Feetables. thought this was maybe like get smart. I saw an article recently, on, on Ed, we'd love to have him on to talk about this science. It's kind of like a popular science thing. Graphene. You know, graphene yeah, sure. is very fine. Anyway, this, I'm going to have to have, we have to do a program on this thing. It's fascinating. But they've got this band now with a super thin thing that can, you can put on a person's wrist that will dispense... Um, um, for diabetics, um, insulin. 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 So that you actually put this thing as a super light, and it is able to dispense it uh, according to what the person needs in this super thin form. It's just like wraps around the wrist, and that's it. Done. Yeah. The, the wearables market is definitely going bonkers. I just don't think that the data that's being gathered at the point at the moment is is actionable, is is useful. But I think we'll get there. I think so too. You know, the one thing in the Apple announcement this past week that uh, I was completely wrong about. We had talked about this last week. Was that uh, Tim Cook did come out on stage, and the first thing he talked about was the whole privacy issue. Yes. And yes. They, and Apple said that they wanted to maintain the privacy for their customers and stuff like that. And that was the standard they were going with. And uh, I was the audience applause from it, I thought was probably just a little bit more uh, agreeing with them. Mm-hmm. But it seemed kind of mixed about the whole situation. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's still a, an issue up for discussion. Well, I understand. Well, Rick, thanks so much for coming by. It's always Thank good to have you in me. here. And, uh, Stephen, thank you as well for having joined us here for this first hour. Time flies when you're having fun, and it's been a great time here. By the way, folks, you can check in on Sunday nights at internetadvisor.net, and we will uh, be posting there all this dialogue as part of our podcast. And you can uh, pick up those individual elements and listen to them again. If you didn't get to hear the whole thing, you can catch a piece of that. Coming up in this next hour, we're going to be talking with a, a group of researchers at Michigan State University who learned how to hack an iPhone through the fingerprint. We're talking with them about that coming up in the next hour. And Mike Brennan will be visiting us to talk about his headlines from MI Tech News. Thank you for joining us here on the Internet Advisor in this first of three hours. We'll be back with hours number two and three coming up shortly after the break. So please do stay tuned here to the great voice of the Great Lakes for the Internet Advisor. You're listening to a podcast of the Internet Advisor Show. If you want to see the show notes for this program, visit our homepage at internetadvisor.net. That's where you'll also find past podcasts, our toolkit full of free software to clean up your computer and keep it running strong, and other resources. If you have a question for our hosts, just click the contact form on the homepage or enter our forums and place your question there. You can also friend us on Facebook. Now let's get back to the second hour of the Internet Advisor Show podcast. Welcome to hour number two of this special edition of the Internet Advisor. I am Foster Brown, co-host and producer of the program. Gary Baker, Ed Riddell, Cal Carson Red Studio with me, and we've got a great hour ahead of us. We're going to be looking at a special anniversary coming up, a 40th anniversary 
of a remarkable computer organization. We'll also be talking with a professor from Michigan State University who succeeded in hacking the fingerprint reader on phones. Oh my, is anything secure anymore? Mike Brennan also showing up with MI Tech News. Good afternoon and welcome to the Internet Advisor. Foster Brown with you along with our posse in studio, Gary Baker, Ed Rudell, Cal Carson. And we're, um, uh, this will be where we will be, by the way, on a regular basis from now until August, provided uh, we, we're not going to get shoved around too much yet, I hope. you know. Well, it's a great opportunity for our listeners to call in with their That's questions. Right. That's right. And because uh, our first hour normally will be 4 to 5 o'clock and we have guests in studio and we're talking with some of the people we have in studio right now. And then from 5 until 6 on a regular basis, you folks will be able to call us at 800-859-0957 with your questions. And no pun intended, it's good to be regular. <laughs> that certainly is. Finally, we are regular here. <laughs> I mean, nothing against, <laughs> nothing against basketball and all the other sports and stuff like that, but man, it sure is good. It's over. <laughs> it sure is good. Hey, guys, you know, one of the organizations that we have uh, been in touch with over the years, and I am delighted to say are uh, enjoying welcoming one of their representatives, is the Southeast Michigan Computer Organization. Richard Jackson is with us. He's the vice president of that, SEMCO, or Southeast Michigan Computer Organization. And Richard, welcome to the program. Welcome. I'm glad to be there. Delighted to have you here because you have a very special announcement about an event that's coming up in the merry month of April. Yes, we are having our 40th anniversary. We've been around since 1976, and on April 10th, we are celebrating, and everybody is invited. That is wonderful. This is the Southeast Michigan Computer Organization. Now, Cal was saying, I ought to stop by there and see some of their old equipment, is it? Yeah, what Uh-oh. is the oldest thing that you're going to have there? Well, we... A member. <laughs> uh, this hasn't been completely decided, but actually we will have something back from the CPM days, uh, almost as far back, and we might even have an uh, an original Altair uh, computer, mm-hmm. the original personal computer. You received it as a kit. A box full of parts and some instructions, and you went to work with a soldering iron. Did you, Eddie? Did you put an altar together? I bet you did. No, I did not. No, no, no. He was still in diapers when they had the altar. (laughs) No, my first computer was a was a Commodore VIC twenty. Okay, and that was when I was in ninth grade. So they. Oh wow. Yeah, I didn't put one of them together, but one of the members, uh, we had a number of members that actually did, and uh, and then there were other ones that came in close behind uh, with their. Miles, they were basically the same thing, but done a little differently. Now, well, uh, your, your members must have been all of what part of the punch card and tape generation. Oh yes, matter of fact, uh, in my career, I worked on mainframe computers, and uh, yes, I, I I even have a few punch cards around here still, and I uh, <laughs> used to work with computer tapes. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, listen, Richard, what I wanted to do was to have you drop by today just to mention that you're going to be having your 40th anniversary because we want to have some of you folks into the studio to talk about these good old days and some of the things that you've gathered together. But tell us quickly for the audience where the 40th anniversary is going to be held. Okay. It is going to be held at the Altair Engineering Incorporated, 18. 20 East Big Beaver Road in Troy, Michigan. Okay. Enter on the west entrance. They have a big, beautiful entrance on the front of the building, but it's just a lot easier to enter on the west entrance, which is by the auditorium. And that will be April the 10th, am I right? 
April the 10th at 1.30 in the afternoon. No, I haven't got a calendar in front of me. Is that a Sunday? Yes, that is a Sunday. Okay, that's a Sunday. Okay, so it should be yes. a... Now, mm-hmm. everybody didn't write down the address, but actually, if you go to semco.org, semco.org, Everything is on the website. And we will post that on our homepage as well, Richard. Uh, Richard Jackson with us, who is the vice president of the Southeast Michigan Computer Organization. And that's going to be their big 40th anniversary. Think of that. And that's going to be on April the 10th, a Sunday at 1.30 in the afternoon. And it'll be at the Altair Engineering Company. And that's on Big Beaver Road in Troy. Sounds. What kind of things are you going to do there at the meeting? Well, we're going to have some, uh, we're actually going to have at least three presenters uh, we're going to have our president. He's going to speak a little bit. Uh, and, uh, oh, he'll look back at, at bulletin board systems and fight on that oh, uh, even before the Internet. Uh, then we're going to have Jim Weiris. Mm-hmm. He is, was our second president, and uh, he will ta- he'll be showing some slides of the early days of Semco. Mm-hmm. And then we are going to have Sharon Kilwani, a supercomputer expert. Ooh. And he will present gazing into the digital crystal ball, trying to imagine what will happen in the next 40 years. He even oh, used to yeah. work for Cray Computers. Oh, yeah. And he's working on a super project at Michigan State University. Well, you know what? I want to see if we can maybe get that crystal ball gazer with us and look into the next 40 years. Sometime uh, in the near future, we'll have him back on the show with us and talk about that. But right now, folks, we just want to let you know about this 40th anniversary that's coming to the Southeast Michigan Computer Organization. As a matter of fact, Cal uh, stepped out of the studio for a minute, but I think Apple is celebrating their 40th anniversary, I think, coming up very soon, too. Ed, do you know, do you remember that? Have you heard about that? I know I tend to ignore all things happen. <laughs> but I'm, oh, I'm pretty oh. sure it's coming up. It's our man. 40, <laughs> 40th yeah. anniversary of Apple is coming up as well. <laughs> in in 19, I think it's 77, right? Uh, yeah, 76, I, 77, yeah. Yeah. In that area. Anyway, Richard, thank you so much for stopping by and visiting with us. And as I say, when we get a chance, we'll have uh, that crystal ball gazer on the show with us in one of our near programs coming up soon. But thank you for being with us. And congratulations to SEMCO. That's the Southeast Michigan Computer Organization. Go to semco.org, O-R-G, and find out more information about that. Their 40th anniversary, April the 10th at 1.30 at Altair Engineering. Thanks, Richard, for being with us. Coming up in just a minute, we're going to be talking with a professor from Michigan State University who managed to learn how to hack the fingerprints on your phone. Well, a number of um, uh, years ago, when I first saw the security being offered by fingerprints on my phone, my iPhone, I thought, ah, finally, we've got something that's uncrackable, that's unique to me, and well, I'm finally safe. <laughs> and then I saw a study that was done by our next guest, and that is uh, Michigan State University distinguished professor Anil Jain, who was with us, along with uh, Kai Kao, and uh, uh, suddenly all of that kind of evaporated. Professor Jain, welcome to the Internet Advisor. Thank you very much. So should I despair of security on my phone with the fingerprint security? No, I mean, I think we don't want to give the impression that uh, fingerprints are not useful in the mobile phone. I think we just wanted to point out some of the weaknesses in, in the security mechanism. And, and I think that's important because unless we bring it out in the open, the, the sensor manufacturers, or in this case, the mobile phone companies, 
won't uh, protect the fingerprint sensor. Uh, and so that was really our purpose. Mm-hmm. And what is the what is the nice thing about uh, our attack method? It it is so simple. Mm. The the earlier attack method immediately after the Touch ID from Apple was introduced in September 2013 was to was to make what is called a gummy finger, a finger mold, uh-huh. and and that takes more time to build. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we did was we were able to show that using a, a special conductive ink and printing it on a photographic paper uh, of somebody's fingerprint, we can hack the phone. Wow. So and, all, all I can think of, Professor, is, oh, my God, thank God that, that, that you can do that now because now a thief that wants to take my phone doesn't have to cut off my thumb. Exactly. Take it yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, just use a 3D printer. You know, It's easier than cutting off Let my thumb. Let me have my thumb back. <laughs> <laughs> hey, professor, but, that, that's Gary Baker. Not even a three D printer, just a two D printer. Oh, yeah, really? That's true. Okay. That's true. Ooh, just a two D printer. See, I, by the way, uh, you know, there's more more ammunition not to take my thumb. Professor, I just want to mention that we have Stephen Fox with us in studio. He's a senior cyber security officer with the Treasury Department, and uh, we were talking about some of these things before we we, we had him on the we had you on the air, but. Um, this so that essentially you were able to use just a very simple printing method, uh, but how did you get the initial fingerprint? Yeah, so so the two ways in which we can get the fingerprint either through collusion, that is, you know, you are willing and you say, okay, let me give you my fingerprint, and mm-hmm. this way there always will be some suspicion who actually, you know, um, uh, unlocked the internet or something like that mm-hmm. or access the network or if you left your fingerprint on a glass surface uh-huh. so for example you left your fingerprint on the on the glass surface of your mobile phone we can lift it and then print it uh-huh. you know so so there are really two ways of doing that but you have to physically be able to possess something that yeah. has the person's fingerprint on it Either that or the person is willingly oh, providing oh, right. you, you know, like a collusion right. attack. Right. Know. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, now, one of the things I thought I had understood, and maybe Steve, you can chime in on this too, Eddie, is that you had to have a living finger attached. In other words, it had to be more than just, you know, the ridges and swirls and things like that, but it had to be somehow connected to... A well, living finger. Well, and that's why I think the professor mentioned that he had conductive ink, a special right. conductive ink. Right. Uh, so what's the significance of that? Help me. Because, because, the, because the, um, the fingerprint reader in the mobile phones are conductive. That is, they, they look at the capacitance difference between the ridges and valleys. So, uh, you know, fingerprint consists of ridges and the valleys. And there is a difference in the height of the ridges and the valleys. Oh, so that's it. It's not necessarily... See, I thought that it was a matter of, like, it had to see your, your, your blood behind it or something like uh, that, or had to see through to the... Yeah, no. Basically, it, it, it's an electronic component. So the right. way that it evaluates the real world is through capacitance and, and differences right. of, in, in, in voltage. Yeah, and some of the earlier readers, like on the HP laptops, used to ship with the... The bar, the little thumbprint yeah, sc- right. that you'd swipe, well, those right. were very easily overcome and became non-functional if you used certain hand creams. Right. So the two things, you know, the, the, earlier, the earlier phones or portable devices like laptops, in fact, the ThinkPad, for example, still has the stripe silicon. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because a stripe silicon is cheaper than a 2D area 
fingerprint. You no, know, because there's less silicon in the in the stripe. Uh. But it it doesn't work very well because you know the user has to move the finger on the on the stripe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in some kind of a uniform speed. Otherwise, the 2D image would not be formed very well. The matching is still uh, done using 2D fingerprint image. I got you. I got you. So it doesn't work very well. We're talking about... I'm sorry, I just want to reintroduce you. We're talking with a distinguished professor, Anil Jain, who was with uh, Univers- uh, Michigan State University and was uh, one of the co-authors of this Hacking Mobile Phones Using 2D Printed Fingerprints, a study. Go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah. So, you know... You you raised the question about the blood flow and the and the pulse. Mm-hmm. So in fact, one way to resist a printed photo attack like we did is by introducing a hardware component in the phone itself, which checks whether the finger whether the fingerprint it is sensing is just a printed copy or a three D mold or is that a living finger? Ah. Okay. So there are really two ways to to build a what we call anti-spoofing. Mm-hmm. One is a software solution, and the other is the hardware solution. Mm. And it turns out that the hardware solution is a lot more reliable than the software solution. Now, Professor, I have a, a question that relates to something that happened a month or so ago, and, and that's with, with the federal government having the bomber's iPhone, and then they had the lockout passcode. Now, right. if that phone had been enabled for the... Uh, you know the th- the finger scanner. Is it is it is it possible to take a photographic you know uh, like an immigration um, you know a photograph of you know of, of someone's fingerprints right. and then actually use that to right. access the phone? Well, it could be possible for some phones, but not every phone not because every phone. phone has a different feature mm. in terms of their uh, security of the fingerprint reader. Mm. So, for example. We don't know. I mean, you know, iPhone, Apple is very secretive about how it implements things. So we have no idea what kind of security measure it has built in mm-hmm. into the fingerprint reader. Um, it all, we also don't know what kind of an internal threshold it puts. When it compares two fingerprint images, it, it finds the similarity between two, two images. And then it decides how much similarity is enough. Uh-huh. And I think in the Apple phone, iPhone, the similarity level, which is expected, is much higher than in some of the other phones. Ah, so there so, are some phones, excuse me, Professor, then there are some phones that all fingerprint readers are not created equal. No, they're okay. not. So first of all, the sensors are different. I mean, there are different manufacturers of the of this uh, capacitive sensor, mm-hmm. which is embedded in the phone. There are different types of uh, fingerprint comparison algorithms which are available uh-huh. and then different uh, different uh, manufacturers have a different uh, anti spoofing so in our experiment we tried spoofing four phones we could we could hack two but not couldn't hack two others oh okay well the the ones which were the ones you you did hack we we were able to hack the samsung and the and the Huawei but we could not hack the um, the the iPhone and the uh, Meizu from China. Oh, the Meizu. That's interesting. Okay. Right. So, so I know I know that the Meizu sensor, the sensor which uh, which is embedded in Meizu, they have a they have a pulse uh, detection capability. Ah, okay. So they've added that to it. Gary, you're exactly. ask a question. Yeah. So I was wondering if you have a perspective on you know we think of dual factor authentication. Yes. Um, do you do you think that say 
turning on a webcam and a fingerprint and the webcam looking at my facial features, if I'll, if, would that be a type of, it's not truly dual factor, um, but you could use two different biosensors mm. like that, couldn't you? Wouldn't Definitely. that be something interesting? Not only interesting? that, you could have a challenge response mechanism in the sense that initially when you buy a new phone with a fingerprint reader, you could enroll all your 10 fingers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, And then the system at the unlock time may ask you randomly, you know, put your left middle finger as ah. an example. <laughs> oh, that's right? interesting. So then the, then the malicious user has to have all ten of your fingers, you know. <laughs> oh, they're going to make them work. They're going to make them work harder oh for it, Stephen. I think you're right. Had a, yeah. So this is called the challenge response mechanism. Okay. But, but the simplest way of doing the multi-factor authentication is to just have pin and fingerprint as an example. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Right. Or as you so, for example, Apple Pay or Samsung Pay, it is really a two-factor authentication because you have to have the phone in possession. Mm-hmm. And which is which communicates with the the near field NFC in mm-hmm. the at the right. at the payment terminal, and then you need to put your finger. Professor Jane, hang on the phone for just a minute. We're going to take a quick break, okay. and when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about maybe some of the future of biometrics in sure. uh, helping us to be secure online. Come back in just a moment to continue our conversation about security on your phones. Welcome back to our conversation about security, and uh, our guest is uh, distinguished professor Anil Jain, who is with Michigan State University and with the Department of Computer Science and Engineering there. Uh, he and a colleague, uh, Kai Kao, did a study called Hacking Mobile Phones Using 2D Printed Fingerprints. We've been talking about that. Also in studio with us is Stephen Fox, who is a senior cybersecurity officer with the Treasury Department. We've been talking in general about security, and uh, Professor Jain, um, one of the things I, I wanted to look ahead to in the future was yes. uh, the, the future of biometrics. You you proved how easy it is to spoof um, the fingerprints in at least some cases. It was with uh, two of the phones that you work with, two of the four phones, the Samsung Galaxy and the Huawei Honor. Right. Uh, you were able to take a fingerprint and, and uh, use special paper and special ink and were able to get the, uh, the, the phone to recognize the fingerprint. Right. Uh, but on some of them, you weren't. Like, for instance, this is good news for me, the iPhone right. uh, 5S, 6, and 6 Plus. I have the 6 Plus. And the Meizu MX4 Pro, which is a Chinese phone, uh, it couldn't do it. No. So uh, you were saying that there are both software solutions and hardware solutions. Let's look a little further. Let's gaze ahead, if you will. Um, and, Stephen, if you have a comment you, know, you want to make or a question, please feel free to jump in with that. Um, what are ways that we can be more secure? Because it's not just about getting into our phones. You mentioned Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, and a whole lot of other ones are using our fingerprints. That's right. So, you know, the first thing you have to realize is why are we using biometrics and why are we using fingerprints? You know, if we didn't have the fingerprints, and by the way, they were introduced in the mobile phones only in 2011. The first company which introduced was Motorola, mm-hmm. but that was not a very popular uh, the, the the user interface was not very good. The fingerprint was a stripe fingerprint, which was at the back of the phone, so it was not very convenient to mm, use. Mm-hmm. Apple did it right by putting it in the home button, and everybody puts the finger on the home button on the mobile phone. Right. So that was really the trick to make it so popular ah. uh, that everybody and everybody is copying that now. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, every mm-hmm. company which has a 
which has a fingerprint, is putting it in the home button. I, I should add, by the way, uh, Professor, just to, to further that, I use it as the way to get into my bank account on my phone. Exactly. And also into my uh, right. uh, password locker. I exactly. use uh, OnePass. Exactly. And- right. So now the question is, what is the alternative? I mm. mean, the alternative was credentials. You know, I mean, you have a document or credit card or PIN or password, and we know what the problems are with those. So sometimes we have to keep things in perspective that if we didn't have biometrics or didn't have fingerprints, how would we be doing it? We know all about the identity fraud. We know the misuse of social security numbers and mm-hmm. and the ATM fraud and things like that. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, biometric is giving us higher security, but there is no security mechanism which is completely foolproof. <laughs> and for the, for the time being, there are certain weaknesses in the face recognition system because mm-hmm. I could be, I could present, I could replay Foster's face in front of the Foster's mobile phone camera and, and be recognized as Foster. Right, right. And so, so every biometric has little bit of weakness. But I think that the technology is improving. And every time we have certain kind of breach, like what we showed, mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 the mobile phone companies will try to, to overcome that. And right. everything can be overcome. So I think in that sense, I think uh, biometrics certainly has many advantages compared to password and the credit card and the credential-based authentication. Steven, well, I, I would agree with that. I mean, there the, the certain applications, especially in the, the military section of, of, of the government, where we do we use multi-factor authentication, including ah. biometrics, because right. it makes sense. Right. Uh, Professor, now, what yeah. for those applications where consumers or um, enterprise users have to use biometrics with their cell phones. Given your research, what 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 are some practical recommendations you would you you have to offer? Well, I mean, I think I think uh, first of all, you know, just these isolated incidents of uh, of uh, attack or the kind of attack we showed. As I said, you know, you know, there are two ways in which we can get your fingerprint. One is you are you are actually the collaborator of the attack, you know, mm-hmm. it's a collusion. And most of the attacks, as we know, are insider attacks, you know. Ah. And, and, the, and the second way is that we can lift it from, your, from the glass surface on your phone. So, I mean, one precaution you can take is that, you know, keep wiping the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the glass surface on your phone. So, you know, if you lose yeah. the phone, then you, you know, you don't lose your fingerprint as well. Um, but I think, I think we have to look at the global perspective on beyond the mobile phones, how much biometrics has come along oh, yes. over the last 15 or, or over the last 10 years, for mm-hmm. that matter, from the, its use in forensics and law enforcement. I mean, after the, after the attack, uh, terrorist attack in 2001, the Congress passed a law that, you know, we should have some, some way of ensuring that the right persons are entering, and that led to the U.S. visit program where all the visitors to the United States at every border crossing have to provide their 10 fingerprints. Uh-huh. And this way they can quickly check whether you are you have a criminal record and whether you are the same person who got the visa in an overseas consulate mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. U.S. government, right? So I mean, that's everybody's using it r- routinely now. Okay. And, and you may not be aware that India, with a population of 1.2 billion, has now enrolled... One billion residents 
using 10 fingerprints and two iris images. Wow. They issue a 12-digit unique number to each resident. My goodness, every one billion of those one residents. One billion. Yep. And I'll be, you know, I'll, I'm actually going to go to India at the end of uh, April, and we're going to be meeting with the team that, that did part of this work. Right. And I'm, I, start, I was one of the original advisors to this program and started in 2009. And nobody, it's mind-boggling. I mean, until this <laughs> program, the largest fingerprint database that, ever, that resides was the FBI database with about 100 million yeah. persons. Right. Okay, and this is one order of magnitude larger. Doctor, I, I wonder though, and, and Stephen, and guys, comment on this. Do, do you think Americans would stand for that? Of you know, uh, giving everybody uh, ten your your ten fingers, provided you have ten fingers, and uh, you know your two irises. As can, I can just see Americans saying, "Heck no, you're not going to get that information." Well, they already do it at birth. I mean, you have your birth records. They force you to do a social security yeah, number. It's the same the thing. The only thing they don't do is yep. take a snapshot of your ir- your irises. So if, right, if, right. A, if, we, if we give Americans enough of an incentive in the market, they're more than willing to give away their privacy. And that goes back to our discussion in the first hour of the show is the way that we perceive privacy as a market function in the U.S., whereas in Europe, it's a function of the individual. Mm. So do you I, think it'd be easier here than it would be in Europe? Oh, uh, much more, much easier. Doctor, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I agree. I agree. It will be much easier. And the, and, the, and the people's perception has changed. I mean, you know, 10 yeah. years ago, if you asked every, anybody about having a national ID card or providing a fingerprint, mm. you know, I mean, people are, people are providing their fingerprint on the mobile phone, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, it's interesting. I lived in, I lived in Venezuela for a while, for two years. And yeah. there, everybody carries the cédula de identidad, which is, you know, everybody has your own ID card, which had your picture on it, and you right. had your fingerprint on it as That's well. Right. And you had to have it. Matter of fact, if you got caught out without it, you're going to jail, right. period. Right. Simply right. you didn't have it. Right. In fact, if you travel to many countries now at the border crossing, they're taking your fingerprints because, you know, you have, you know, if you go to Brazil, if you go to South Korea, for example, mm-hmm. they take your fingerprints at the airport, just like U.S. takes it for the visitors. They also are maintaining a database. So I think it has become a routine thing now. I mean, and I think people are perceiving it as keeping you secure. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I think when I had my last home mortgage, they took my fingerprints. I, at, right. So, yeah. you know, some banks do that. Really? Right. Yep, thumbprints is authentication, yep. Right. And you know, the thumbprints have been used. The first time thumbprints were introduced was in India during the British rule in 18, 1870 or so. No. You know, one, one guy, one British colonel thought that, you know, when he was giving the wages to the workers at the end of the day, he wanted their thumbprint so that he, he could show that this person has actually received the wages. It was like a signature. I mean, you know, in many legal documents in India in villages, people do a thumbprint because they cannot write their signature. Sure, sure, sure. Rather than X marks the spot. Exactly. Absolutely fascinating. What about uh, some of the other forms of biometrics? Uh, like, um, what is the, um, uh, Microsoft has one, is it called Hello? Is that yes, the one yes, they're trying yes. out, I think, with facial recognition? Right, right. So basically the three... Three main biometric traits, I would say four maybe, fingerprint, face, iris, and voice. Okay? Mm-hmm. And these are the four major biometric modalities of, or your human body characteristics which are being used in the systems. Mm-hmm. Among these, I would say fingerprint and iris are the most accurate. Mm-hmm. 
And fingerprints and face, on the other hand, have the largest legacy database, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you want a security clearance and in Michigan, for example, if you want to be a school driver or do anything with the children, daycare center, school mm-hmm. teachers, you all have to provide your fingerprints to do the background check. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Our faces are in all kinds of databases, driver license database, right. your passport and government ID card. And I would imagine the software is better now for recognizing those faces, too. It is better, but still there is a problem of illumination, yeah. um, expression, yeah. and pose. Mm-hmm. These, are, these three together are called PIE, P-I-E, pose, in, pose, illumination, and expression, and finally aging. So if I take your photo today and try to match it 10 years later, the, the probability of match will go down. <laughs> some of us some of us change more as we get older. Exactly. <laughs> Things are no longer in the same place they were before. <laughs> so, Professor, I, I'm kind of interested. I've heard a lot about the um, palm yeah. and using that. And I know we're almost out of time, but... Um Hang, hang on just a second. When okay. we come back okay. at the end, I want to take talk just maybe a little bit on okay. the end of that, and then we'll get okay. Mike Brennan on as well. Right. So hang on for Sounds a moment. <laughs> Professor Anul K. Jain, who is part of that uh, study at the Michigan State University, we're talking about a fascinating subject. That's the future of security for us in many ways. Mike Brennan coming up with MI Tech News headlines as well in just a moment as we wrap up this hour of the Internet Advisor. Your questions coming next hour. Once again, thank you to the folks behind the glass. As we say, Eric Dorch, our engineer, thank you, and Logan Stadifer, who is our producer. And by the way, coming up next hour, we'll be opening our phone lines for your questions at 800-859-0957. And Mike Brennan coming up in just a moment with the MI Tech News headlines. But right now, uh, we're bringing back uh, Professor Anil Jain, who was one of the co-authors of a study called Hacking Mobile Phones Using 2D Printed Fingerprints. Uh, Professor, before we went, Gary had a question for you about a... Technology, uh, or so, biometric. Yeah, so, um, you know, Professor, uh, we've only been doing this 18-some years, and uh, I asked a rookie question <laughs> right as we were going into a break. So uh, forgive me for doing that. But the, my question really was around, I've heard that the security in your palm uh, is even more um is more identifiable or, or discreet right. than, say, your fingerprint. Is that true, and how does that work? No, so actually, I mean, palm print is an important characteristic, and in fact, the ridges and valleys which are present on your fingerprints are also present in palm print. So the matching technology is essentially the same. But the because palm is a much bigger surface area, it takes a lot more time to match palms, and okay. you need mm. a much bigger sensor to capture the palm print than fingerprint. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mm-hmm. can just look at the what is embedded in mobile phones. It's just a, what ninety by ninety pixels. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. right, to right. capture the whole palm, you'll need a much bigger sensor. Mm-hmm. And also, then there is a concavity in the palm. So when you put a palm on the on a flatbed scanner, you have to apply some pressure on the top. Otherwise, you won't get the central part. Mm-hmm. So I think for that reason, palm prints are primarily used in forensics where somebody at the crime scene, instead of fingerprint, left the palm print. So there's something called the writer's palm. If you if you wrote a threatening note or a suicide note or something like that, you put your writer's palm or part side of the palm on the right. paper while mm-hmm. you were writing, you know, that... That's a good indication. To That's interesting. So you'll be using you'll be using forensic science rather than exactly. Than so not for not for identification or mm-hmm. verification in the civilian sector because just 
sensors will be a lot more bulky and it will take a lot more time. Just to give you an example, fingerprints are done, fingerprint matching is done based on minutia points. And typically in a good quality fingerprint, there may be 100 minutia points. But in a palm print, there are 1,000. Yeah. So, so there's like 10 times more. So computationally, doing the palm print matching will be much higher. And the accuracy is about the same. Mm. You know? Oh, I see. Okay, that's interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. Professor, we uh, have run out of time here, and there's just so much more to talk about, but thank you so much for joining us here on thank the Internet so Advisor. Professor Anil Jain is uh, you, the Distinguished Professor at MSU, and he has got the Department of Computer Science and Engineering. We'll post the entire study up there so you can take a look at that. Professor, again, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was fun. All right, it was. <laughs> Fascinating conversation. And uh, Steve, th- Stephen, thank you very much for being with us in studio as well. Stephen Fox from uh, the Treasury Department. He's a senior cybersecurity officer there as well. Thanks so much for being with us. All right. Hey, it's time for us to check in with Mr. Mike Brennan, who is the editor of MITechnews.com. Mike, how you doing out there? Doing great. I've been Grand Rapids getting ready to celebrate Easter with the family. So could you talk a little bit longer? Our voice print is just trying to determine if you're really the the right (laughs) Mike Brennan. Although I'm on my cell phone, so I'm not sure how good the audio is. (laughs) Fascinating subject about security, and heaven knows where it is going to be going. But what we do every week, folks, is, is to bring Mike on at this time. He is the editor of MI Tech News, and that is a gathering of information about technology and entrepreneurship throughout Michigan. Mike has been gathering that kind of news for many, many years, and now it's available to you absolutely free as a delivery on Fridays of the printed material. And then also he's got a lot of material that he presents from podcasts and other sources, videos in the middle of the week. So Mike, let's look at some of the kind of headlines that you've got this week. One I saw there was interesting is that Michigan Science Center has become the fifth spark lab in the country. What's a spark lab? Well, it's a new educational space where uh, it's developed along with the Smithsonian Institute of Ford. It's a place where they're trying to teach, I don't know if it's just kids or everybody, to be inventors and how to explore and engage with hands-on activities Mm. and kind of get that whole innovative spark thing going, hence the name. And so the uh, kickoff is going to be on April Fool's Day, I believe. No, actually the day before. Uh, Next Thursday is when they're going to have the ribbon cutting. I'm going to go there and check it all out and and get it into next week's newsletter let everybody know all the details about what's happening. Excellent. That's so great to hear. Another one I saw here, and it's kind of interesting in terms of some of the security issues we've been talking about, is uh, you have a headline there about an Israeli company possibly helping the FBI to crack the iPhone. Yeah, this came from an Israeli newspaper uh, that the company called, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, Sally Bright, a Bright, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they have a technology that allows them to transfer and extract data from phones. Now, I guess the FBI has given it a shot because the the hearing that was they were going to have with Apple, where they were going to order them to go ahead and uh, right. you know uh, unlock the phone, as it were, and that's been postponed. So apparently the feds are going to wait and see if these Israelis can help them. And Israel's, there's a lot of companies in Israel that are very, very good in cybersecurity. Yeah. So yeah. see what happens, I guess. They're right? remarkable. I understand that the whole, the desert area in the south, and uh, is it Beirut? Uh, no, no, um, um, Beersheba, pardon me, down in the desert there, uh, as barren as it is, is like a hotbed for the development of security programs. And the Israelis are extremely Good at that. Another interesting topic. Okay, final one there. This also is involving the FBI, but uh, it's kind of interesting. And they're declaring that connected cars are increasingly vulnerable to cyber attacks. 
Yeah, that's pretty much because they don't have any defense against them. Uh, it's it's kind of along the lines of what's happened with the power grids and water treatment plants and everything else. It was so convenient to connect them to the Internet. Hey, why not do that? Well, yeah. no one thought that through, right? Mm. Because all the bad guys have access to it more before they didn't. Same thing with the cars. I mean, they want to they want to be able to download the diagnostics on the car, have your Bluetooth work with, and bring in whatever you want sure. from your music to anything that you can imagine. But at the same time, there's no security. So, I mean, the, 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 and they're going to use... Essentially, they think then, you know, the car becomes the entry point for someone that then connects with the business network right. that gets them inside the business. That's kind of the way it's right. they're Stephen Fox, by the way, you had a comment. Right. At last year's DEF CON, which is a security research conference every year, Tesla donated one of their vehicles, and hackers were challenged to hack into the car. And several hackers were able to take the car over, mm. actually be able to... Unlock and unlock the car, start the engine, wow. apply the brakes, all sorts of apply interesting things. Ooh, jeez. Yeah. That is a scary thought that somebody be able to do that kind now, of thing. Now, were they given remember? any additional help, um, or did somebody just say, go for it? Go for it. Basically, okay. uh, Tesla wanted to see what they, what, what they could do, and they were, they, they were giving the hackers prizes. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, I, thank you, Mike, for uh, bringing these headlines to our attention. And, folks, it's absolutely free, this service called MI Tech News. Uh, you either go to mitechnews.com, put your email address in there, and Mike will begin to send that information to you on Fridays. And also, you'll get the delivery on Wednesday of all the resources you have there in um, video and audio, including M Squared TechCast, which is your special podcast. Yeah, ours, uh, our show, my show with Matt on Mondays. And, of course, your show, uh, right. what we're doing now live becomes a recording that we then share with everybody and a number of other programs that we work with. So it's a great resource, folks. You get both the audio and video and then these headlines as well. Mike, have a very nice Easter out there on the west side of the state. You too, Foster and Gary. Have a good one. All right. We'll talk Take with care, you Mike. this Happy coming Easter. week. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, folks, this is now the third hour. In this case, our 5 to 6 o'clock hour is your hour. That's when you get to call 800-859-0957 with your questions. And Gary and Ed and Cal are in studio here to tackle the questions you have and get you some answers. Again, that number is 800-859-0957. Our producer, Logan, is standing by, and the phone lines are open right now. Line up, and we'll get you just as we get past the news at the top of the hour. Again, that number, 800-859-0957. Get your questions ready, and we'll get some answers for you. 